Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ladies and gentlemen, here are the 1980 All-Stars and the pitcher warming up in the bullpen for the Baltimore Orioles. A 12-game winner already this year, Steve Stone. The key is very simple. Today, I watched Riverdance 20 times. Gene Butler, Michael Flatley in the final performance. I used to be able to do that, but because I can't dance or wear my pants all that high, I had to give it up. It stunted what otherwise was going to be a mediocre career. Steve Stone with Matt Spiegel on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. Well, I, I didn't know I was going to get both the 1980 All-Star Game and Riverdance in my radio coffee this morning, but here we are. Life is long. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Hit and Run on 670 The Score. I'm your host, I'm Matt Spiegel. I'm across the street from the ballpark at the Shy Sox Bar and Grill, and that man, featured prominently in both of those bits of sound, joins us right now on the show. He is Steve Stone. Good morning, Steve. How are you, sir? Good, Matt. How are you today? I am wonderful. Thank you. Just had a really good conversation with Aaron Bummer, who is incredibly fun to talk to and probably even more fun to watch pitch. He's just got that crazy natural movement on his stuff. Uh, it, it's, he's, he's been a great story, hasn't he? Well, I talked with Aaron this morning, and I uh, congratulated him on just a great first half of this season. Yes, he's, he's slowly becoming one of the most dependable and best left-hand bullpensman in baseball and you don't hear a whole lot about him because his team is not in the running for uh, any division titles or postseason play at this point in the third year of a rebuild but Aaron has very quietly emerged as a guy that I think is a potential closer I mean there is going to be life after Colome, and to me the first guy to get that assignment would be Aaron Bummer he's got some work to do he's still a, <clears throat> a relatively young uh, bullpen arm but yeah the natural movement is something you can't really teach and everything he throws moves now this year, he's harnessed his command, he's harnessed his control, and he consistently throws it in the zone. One of those guys where if you do make contact, you hit the top of the baseball, you beat it into the ground, and that's pretty good. Plus, in this day and age where you don't want any contact because you don't trust defenses near as much as you would in other eras, um, he gets a lot of strikeouts. It's interesting about not trusting defense. I was talking about that uh, uh, last hour, I think, or just like, fundamentals and defense are not are not quite as expected um, on the big league level once these guys arrive. you got a lot of people learning how to play at the big league level these days, don't you? Well, I think guys get to the major leagues younger. I mean, you look across baseball, and the average age of baseball is probably as young as it's ever been. And so as guys come here younger, they, pay, they play less games in the minor leagues, and they have less training. So they don't understand the nuances of defense, where to line up. I mean, Yesterday, a great example, <clears throat> and it was a veteran, and it's a little, uh, it's a little talked about thing, but the reason is that it didn't factor in the outcome of the game. But John Lester wasn't backing up on the plate on that throw home, <clears throat> and it cost him a run. <clears throat> Excuse me. It didn't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but when a pitcher doesn't have any responsibilities, he has to get in line with a throw that's coming home. And 
John Lester had no responsibilities on that play except backing up Contreras. He wasn't there. It moved the runner to third. He scored on a ground ball. It made the game closer. Again, it didn't matter in the grand scheme of things except that still the Sox had, <clears throat> I'm sorry, had Jose Abreu come up as the tying run in the ninth inning. If that run doesn't score, and it wouldn't have scored had Lester backed up, then he wouldn't have come up. So it was a little thing. It happened in the middle of the ball game, but it's like uh, the ripple effect. The things that happen early affect what happens late, and the teams that want to choke off other teams make sure that you don't give up 90 feet because you give up 90 feet too many times, you wind up losing a game that you should have won. Hey, Stoney, you've watched Lucas Giolito all year long. Were you surprised to see him lose the release point and kind of not be able to find it as he did in the fifth inning? Well, Matt, look, this is something, and and this is is a subtlety of the game. You have to pitch in big games to learn how to pitch in big games. And you saw the contrast of a guy who's seen everything, been everywhere, under the greatest pressure and all the strain in the world in John Lester. He went out there very calmly dispatched the Sox last night, making good pitch after good pitch, had his command and control, mixed speed, threw the curveball probably more than he's been throwing it, used that cutter very well inside, kept everybody off balance. You know, it used to be you faced John Lester. You got that outside fastball. You took him to right field. You're in pretty good shape. That's not the case anymore because he's adjusted to the aging process of major leagues. Lucas Giolito has been a year and a half in a major league rotation, a year and a half. Now, you know, he had a taste before, but really not consequential. So you can't duplicate the texture of what that game was last night and what the game was in Wrigley Field. You have to experience that. You have to live through it. Lucas is having a wonderful year, and let's keep this in perspective. He's eight games over for a team three games under. That's a magnificent first half. There are very few pitchers who are good enough to dominate teams on a bad team or an adequate team or a mediocre team. The greatest I ever saw was Steve Carlton. His team won 59 games in 1972. He went 27 and 10. He, he threw well above what his team could play, but he was a Hall of Famer, an all-time great. Lucas is still learning his craft. He's going to know what these big games feel like. And I know everybody's going to say, well, what do you mean big games? Sox are under 500. They're in their third year of a rebuild. It was a big game emotionally. You can't duplicate the adrenaline surge. You can't duplicate that feeling you get walking to the mound in front of a full house. You can't duplicate that feeling of Cubs-Sox rivalry. And look, the Sox are trying to get where the Cubs have been. There's no doubt about that. But they're not there yet. They will be. And for Lucas, the more games he pitches like last night, the more times he falls out of rhythm completely, the more times he spins around after throwing a pitch, he's going to realize how to get it back again. He's done a really nice job of going from last year to this, being from an also-ran to a guy who is going to the All-Star game. And I think the more he does it, the better he's going to be. So, yeah, look, we saw him literally lose all command and revert back to last year. We saw that last night. You're not going to see it too many times. You haven't seen it too many times this year. That's great stuff, Stoney, because I I started the show and talking about it, and of course you can't help but notice and look down that his two worst starts of the year are six earned runs apiece in both of the games uh, against the Cubs. There's a a five earned run game against Seattle early on. That's when they were hitting a thousand homers the first three weeks, and that's just, just what they were doing. Um, but but this is it's a necessary and understandable kind of next step to take. 
and these games are absolutely emotionally packed. And it's great that, that they're good enough and that this is a moment that's interesting enough that he gets a chance to do it. And maybe there'll be a couple more in the second half. I thought he was great on a Friday night against the Yankees here a few weeks back, and maybe that was you know one where he could feel it a little bit. But hopefully he gets some more. You needed him. You needed games like that in order to feel the confidence within games like that, right? Well, look, I, I came up my first year, the Giants won their division, and so I pitched in a couple of those, but not consequential late. When I got to Baltimore, they were going to be in it each and every year I was there, and I got an opportunity to pitch in consequential games late in the season. Uh, we were down we were down 11 games to the Yankees starting on August 1st and eventually closed to a, a game and a half and never got any closer. Um, but I beat the Yankees twice in five days, and I had never beaten the Yankees before. Those were consequential games. We had to catch the Yankees, and never having been in there, but I was a veteran. You know, I, at that point, I was nine, ten years in the major league, so it wasn't like I was a kid, except that pitching in those games teaches you something each and every time because you're going to fall out of rhythm in a given game, and you have to know how to get it back again. You're going to lose your concentration and your focus. You have to learn how to get it back again. And unless you have stood on that mound in those pressure-packed situations where you feel you want to squeeze the sawdust out of the ball, um, that's not the case. You can't try harder in baseball. Anger is a luxury you cannot afford in baseball. You get disappointed or angry with yourself, you're going to throw another ball, and then a ball after that and a ball after that. You're going to find yourself falling behind each and every time. That's not what you can do as a pitcher. You have to be as cool and calm as you possibly can be inside. You can show some emotion. There's no problem with that. But inside, you have to be like you're walking you know, to get, uh, go to the supermarket and get something to buy something. I mean, that's that's how you have to feel on the mound. But it's difficult to do that if you haven't been there. So the fact that he has been there is something that's really good. He's going to learn from these things. He's still a work in progress, yet it's a pretty good work in progress at this point. Sure is. Uh, Steve Stone, kind enough to give us some time on the morning of Cubs and Sox right here on Hit and Run and 670 The Score. We're here at the Shizak's Bar and Grill, uh, brought to you by Wintrust, the presenting sponsor of the Crosstown Series. So as I've been talking about Joe Madden and thinking about his place and his relationship with Theo and everything, it seems like front offices really want managers to have uh, a few different gears. Like Joe's strength is consistency and calmness and showing up every day the same way and providing that atmosphere. But it seems like this is a moment where Theo is expecting, and I believe Joe is trying to give a different approach, whether it's more fire or whether it's more hands-on or that kind of thing. Do the best managers have multiple ways of leading and communicating that they can call upon as needed? Let me, let me float to you an idea that I've been mulling around, and I think that it's going to make sense. I think we're going to see it in the future. Um, you know, it used to be heresy to say you needed two hitting coaches, two pitching coaches. Well, now what you're seeing is you're seeing a regular pitching coach. You're always seeing a pitcher or a catcher in the bullpen who's a de facto pitching coach. So you have a couple of different voices talking to your pitchers. Most teams have at least two hitting coaches. I mean, that's just what happens. Plus, they have your analytics guys and everything that go with it. I think, Matt, we're going to see a time in the not-too-distant future when you're going to see two managers. And this is not to denigrate any manager at the point. I think there's three really great managers in baseball right now. I think there's only three. One is leaving. That's Bruce Bochy. I think he's magnificent. Another is Bob Melvin, who right now for me is the best manager in all of baseball, but you don't hear a lot about him because he's been out on the West Coast for quite some time. Another is Terry Francona, another good guy, an older manager. And, you know, you've got to take into consideration a lot of things when you're a manager. 
you have to be a motivator. You have to be a psychologist. You have to be part mechanic. You have to be a father confessor. There are very few guys that have all of those skills. We have seen wonderful motivators in this game. They're great in the clubhouse. They're wonderful managers from 10 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock the next night. Then during the course of a ball game, they are not consistently, but occasionally outmanaged by another really good manager on the other side. So why don't we take the best of a couple of different people and put them together sitting side by side in the dugout? It's not the bench coach because he has responsibilities for the infield and a lot of other things. I'm talking about the running of a baseball game. There are masters at running a baseball game. There are masters at motivating people in the clubhouse. There are masters at getting the best out of every one of these pitchers, knowing who to boot in the butt, knowing who to encourage, knowing who they can yell at, knowing who they can't, knowing the strengths of each player, knowing how to bring the best out of them on a daily basis. I think we need two guys to do that because your best motivator is not necessarily your best in-game manager, the guy who is never outthought by the opposition, the guy who can manipulate that bullpen because that's the art of managing, knowing when to get a guy up, knowing how to keep the arms fresh for the consequential games in August and September. Many times they're not the same guy. Many times that guy that can get players to play for him is not the best X's and O's guys. And we're going to see that more. And I think that's coming. I think this game has gotten too big. I think the liaison with the front office, with all of the data and all of the analysis and all of the statistics that come down, sometimes the guys know that. Sometimes they can do that very well, but they lack in motivational skills. Other guys are wonderful motivators, but they lack in knowing when to get this left-hander up because three guys down the road, there is a left-hander that your right-hander can't possibly get up. The manager has a lot of things on his mind. Many of them fall by the cracks, and you get outmanaged a couple of games and you find yourself not going to the playoffs. And what does that cost a team? When you talk about what it would be to have a co-manager in the dugout, you're talking about a million-dollar guy. I mean, that's, that's peanuts to major league teams these days. We're going to see that. And so you asked Joe to be a lot of things, all things. Everybody wants their manager to be a lot of things and all things. But sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So, look, if Joe wins, he's here. I truly believe, along with a lot of other people, that Joe Madden has done a spectacular job. He's taken a moribund franchise that couldn't get over the top. And along with Theo and Jed and Jason McLeod, they have shown uh, a window here of consistently competitive baseball that the Cubs haven't seen. So to pin it all on Joe, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case because, don't forget, Joe can only manage the guys he's given, and there's 25 of them at a time. So if he's given a team that has some holes, Joe can't fill those holes. That has to come from the front office. I think Joe has handled them well. I think the guys play well for him. And granted, fundamentals are tough. But understand, Joe has never been the policeman in that dugout. He had George Hendrick to do it in Tampa Bay. He had Dave Martinez to a certain extent to do it here in Chicago. And now he doesn't have either of those two guys. So Joe is a different kind of guy. He's a wonderful motivator. He takes a lot of pressure off his team. But is he the perfect manager? He's a very good manager. There are no perfect managers, but the three that I mentioned, Francona, Bochy, and notably Bob Melvin for a newer generation of players, these guys are exceptional at every aspect of managing. We're going to lose Bochy. I'm not sure how much Terry Francona is going to hang around. Melvin will be here and be terrific. And one of the great managers that's sitting out there for any team that might want him is Joe Girardi, and he's sitting out in North Chicago right now, and he's waiting for the ideal job to come along. I don't know where or when it's going to be, but he's the best man currently not managing. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, I think this game would like to see him back.
Yeah, I, I, and I, I think Joe will get back. Um, but, boy, that, that, that's great stuff, Stoney. It's interesting. I actually spent a good portion of the last hour talking about the role of the modern manager and described it in some different ways. But, but, but similarly, like you, there are so many different facets to doing it these days. And I think, you know, it's up to front offices now, and they kind of map out, all right, this is my guy for that, this is my guy for this. Hell, there's an analytics guy, a 28-year-old Princeton grad in uniform as a coach on the Tampa Bay Rays staff, you know? Um, Joey Cora's got a, uh, he's got a front office liaison within his staff that, that, that's in there. So there's a lot of people like that. So th- the thing is, I think people look to that one person as their emotional leader, their sort of emotional center as the boss and that's impractical in a lot of ways to think that that guy who's capable of that, providing the atmosphere and being that emotional center as the boss, is also the best analytical guy. But if he allows someone else to be in charge of certain things, he's got to have a special kind of ego that allows for somebody else to be the one in charge of certain things. So it's, there's very few guys that are, that are capable of being all things. Well, I believe that this job has just gotten too big, and I believe that... Um we're going to see that where you have two guys sitting there and one guy is going to be in charge of handling that 7 to 10 o'clock time. And the other guy is going to be in charge of handling the 10 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock the next day, motivating these guys to go out there every day and understanding personalities and being a psychologist and being the guy to, to light the fire under guys when they really need it. But the X's and O's guys, it's very difficult to find one guy, one guy who can do everything. I think the day and age of baseball is coming where you won't find one guy to do just everything you need to do. We see assistant general managers for every general manager. We see guys who are, we see advisors to general managers. I mean, you, you look at, you look at um, these books for every organization, uh, the media guides, and you'll see a list of special advisors to the general manager, guys who they have his ear, they bring in input. And granted, he has a final say, but a lot of their assistant GMs have big says in organizations. Plus, you know, you have your president of, of the baseball side of, uh, you know, and, and he's another guy who, along with the general manager, helps make decisions. So if you've got a division of labor with five or six guys in your front office, why shouldn't you have it in the dugout? I mean, that's your yeah. most important thing. That's where the game is won and lost. You can provide whoever you want to from the front office. You can evaluate till the cows come home. You can use analytics and data and stats, and that's good. That's all part of it. You can use that fine the question is then how are you going to implement it who's going to implement it and maybe it's two guys instead of one from from the personality standpoint uh for the manager and for a boss like that the ability to point the thumb and say i screwed that up but that's okay we we got through it and we'll always get through it and we're all going to screw stuff up the ability to be uh not self-deprecating that's not what i mean but self-aware enough and comfortable enough to, to admit that you've made a mistake. In any kind of the scenarios you're talking about where there's a collaboration, everybody has to have that. And, and, like it, and if, if one guy doesn't, we've seen this, Steve, in different collectives. If, if that manager doesn't have that, it can get ugly real fast. Did you, I mean, you played for one of the most brilliant guys to ever manage in, in this sport, in Earl Weaver. Was he able to say, well, I think I was wrong about that. Let's move on to something else. No, he wasn't. But the thing that Earl did do that put him a little bit above is he never had a doghouse. So you could have a terrible game and make a horrific mistake, but if he thought you were the guy next day to help him, he would put you right back in the lineup. Earl wasn't those guys to say I made a mistake. But, you know, if you're not making a mistake, 
you're not doing it. In other words, you know, I know that Theo's taken a lot of heat lately for um, um, a lot of the moves that he made, the Darvish, the Chatwood things, you know, the money that he spent. And, look, if you're not out there making moves, you're not doing the job. And nobody gets all the moves right. And so the thing is with Theo, he's been brilliant. Um, to criticize him at this point is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, breaking the curse in Boston, breaking the curse with the Cubs, this is Hall of Fame stuff. The man is, is a Hall of Fame executive, but he's with us at this point. So enjoy what he's done. You can criticize the moves he makes. They can't possibly all work out. I mean, look, Arietta today is going to have arm surgery. I know everybody said you should have signed Arietta instead of Darvish. Well, maybe you should have. But in the meantime, um, was it $126 million not well spent? Well, sure, you can make an argument out of that. However, how about John Lester? John Lester has come through and done a great job. But the end result is that he put together an organization that had no foundation of winning for 108 years, and he won it. And so this organization is now competitive each and every year. You have wonderful players at most every position. That usually you give credit to the general manager and to the man who is calling the shots above him, which is Theo and Jed, along with Jason McLeod, who's been brilliant. So you take a look at that and you say, you know, these guys – they have done a magnificent job. And we have on our side a rebuild that's going on. And the players we're rebuilding with were mostly players that were acquired and a couple of players who were drafted by Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams. These guys have done a really nice job here of divesting themselves of players who had some value. Chris Sale still has a lot of value. As you saw, Boston won the World Series. That's the object of this. You trade Moncada, you trade Kopech, you trade Basabi, and you get Chris Sale and he helps you win the World Series. I mean, that's what you do when you're trading away the future to get a lot of the present. You trade Adam Eaton, you get Giolito, you get Dane Dunning, you get Lopez, and hopefully Lopez will take the next step. That's what you do. But without great contracts and without far-sighted GMs who can evaluate the players that they have to give to get the players back in the rebuild, you're not going to get anything done. So, look, Rick and Kenny both. Kenny's already won a World Series, and Rick is trying to duplicate that. Things are on the upswing for the Chicago White Sox, and the rebuild is in progress. It's doing really well. But on the other side, you know, when people are talking about the job that Theo's done and criticizing him for what he's done, I think it's misplaced. I mean, fans are, what have you done for me lately? And they'll boo you tomorrow, but this is not the guy to boo. This is a Hall of Fame guy that currently works on the north side. I think you should be pretty proud of what he's done over there because year after year, the Cubs are right there, and it's a good team. I know they haven't played the way they're supposed to play. They're going to. They're really good. They're just going to put it all together, and good teams put the hammer down in August and September. I would expect the Cubs will do that. That division is just hanging there like a pinata. I don't think any team is capable of running away with it except the Chicago Cubs. That's the only team, if they can solidify that starting pitching, I don't think anybody can play with them in the Central. But it's going to be a a great race because no team has stepped out yet. And bear in mind something. Watch very closely the moves that they make in Milwaukee at the trade deadline, that could very much determine who wins, who wins the division. Stoney, um, really great to talk with you and, and, and reconnect here on the radio. Always enjoy it as the listeners do. Thank you so much. Enjoy the game and enjoy your All-Star break. It should be a dandy day. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Matt. I'll talk to you down the road. All right. See you, Steve. That's Steve Stone, Cubs television analyst, or excuse me, White Sox television analyst, former Cubs television analyst, but... A man steeped in, uh, in the history, contextually, of all sorts of things in baseball. Enjoyed the managerial stuff, uh, for sure. All right, it's Hit and Run. I am Matt Spiegel. I'm live at the Shy Sox Bar and Grill, right across from the ballpark. 
a man who had 30 homers two years in a row for the White Sox. A former steel worker, now a woodworker. I want to talk to him next. Ron Kittle coming up on 670 The School. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, way back, reach out. Whoa, rooftop shot for Kittle into this win on a cold night, and the game is tied. It's nice to hear Hawk Harrelson. We haven't heard much of Hawk Harrelson for a while so it's been nice to to get some in there and squeeze some in there why not because he called a ton of games as played by our guest right here it is ron kittle kind enough to come over and sit down for a few minutes here at the shy Sox bar and grill how are you sir i'm doing good enjoying the uh, weather and uh hopefully they'll split a game today yeah you know it's uh, the atmosphere is awesome and were you there last night inside last night yeah as I well was, i was there i mean it was a good ball game uh the fans were cheering on both sides for good plays, bad plays. Uh, you know, North Side won today, uh, yesterday, and we'll see what happens today. Yeah, but it, it, it's a good moment for this this crosstown thing that that we do every year, a couple times every year, because the White Sox are really interesting again. You know, I, I think they got a lot of interesting players on their way up over there. Well, you know, the Cubs proved it. I mean, they had one of those uh, suspect teams years ago, and they putting everything together. They win a world championship. Uh, the White Sox are trying to turn things around. Uh, we got some great energetic players out there, which is really nice uh, to see on the field. So something spectacular is going to happen all the time. Uh, they're not playing awesome, but they're playing pretty doggone good baseball and exciting baseball. Do you wish uh, Do you wish this stuff had been happening when you were when you were playing with the White Sox? You, you, played, you played in the exhibitions, right, at the beginning of the year? Yeah, we did a crosstown game, one game yeah. uh, at one field, and the next year we went to the other field. And most of the time, it was your only off day. So you really didn't want to go play, you know, another ball game. But yeah. it, it was kind of good. Uh, a lot of each team would bring up their coming up stars in AAA. Yeah. And I remember Dave Otto got called up, and I was his first batter. He came in on relief, and he drilled me right in the ribs. And he re- backed off the mound and started going to second base because he thought I was going to run out there and kick his butt. <laughs> <laughs> Otto's a good dude. I, I, did he do it on purpose? No, no. He was just so pumped. You know, uh, he was in Des Moines pitching, and he came down there, and he threw his first pitch as hard as he could. And, yeah. Uh, it, it was like a little cutter, and I couldn't move. It just buried me. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, when they look back on those games, they remember that Michael Jordan came up and played in one of them. But but that's why is because a lot of the kids would come up from the minors. Um, it, what, what else do you remember from those games that you got a chance to play against the Cubs, either at Wrigley or here, in terms of, uh, you know, was it fun? Were, were the crowds into it and stuff? Oh, yeah. The, you know, it, it was, I grew up uh, in Gary, Indiana, so I watched WGN. I was a Cubs fan. So you got to see Billy Williams or any banks everybody out at the ballpark shake yeah. hands with them so you know, for you. get some collectible autographs from these guys and uh, i'm a baseball fan I, I like the game of baseball i like people who play hard if you don't play hard uh you're not on my positive list but uh, <laughs> you know it was camaraderie because we played a lot against each other in the minor leagues until you get to the big leagues now you're 
it's a big battle. Yeah. But in the minor leagues, you're just friends. You're eating pizzas together, and nobody makes any money in the minor league. So, you know, you share what you can, and it, it's just great rivalry. Ron Kittle was the rookie of the year in the American League in 1983. Every time I see those uniforms, they're wearing them a lot these days, aren't they? The throwback 83s? I they're wearing it today, if I'm not mistaken. It's a Sunday, and uh, that's what they put on there. They've had some pretty good luck with it. Yeah, well, it, I mean, and they look good. You know, it's, when you see them, you get a kick out of seeing them wearing them? I, I do. It's, uh, right now, they say it's one of the highest, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, popularity uniforms yeah. of retro. And it really is. It's kind of unique. Uh, the material now is a lot better than what we had. <laughs> <laughs> right? It was a crazy polyester. Was it hot? It was hot, and uh, every time you slid, your pants would tear. So it really it looked like Frankenstein. You had like 30 or 40 <laughs> patches on your legs, and uh, it was made by Sandman at the time. And uh, it, it was fun. It, a uniform is good when you're in the big leagues, no matter what it looks wait, like. Wait a minute, wait a so, minute. So just patch after patch, they wouldn't give you a new pair of pants well, if they tore? Oh, no, they'd give you one. If you slid, yeah. they, they tore. Every time. Every single time. They know. They should have known. That's kind of that's part of baseball. That happens fairly often. Yeah, and I think uh, three years later, they changed everything. Uh, went to a different company. But, uh, uh, they, they, you know, right now, I have one, uh, my original one. It's like it's shrinking. The material and time is just making it shrink. Wow, that's interesting to, to look at the, what's happening there. Um, I mentioned, and some people texted, like, what, a steel worker, woodworker? What? And we'll talk about the wood stuff. I meant baseball bats. But the steelworker part, explain to people how this happened. Because you make your MLB debut at 25 years old. Uh, before that, you had a minor league year. I think you had 50 homers in a minor league season. Is that correct? Yeah, the year before, Triple A. A Triple A, you had 50 homers in one season. Um, but a steelworker before that, is that, was that just like a job to have when you weren't playing baseball? Or was that going to be a career for you? Uh, you know, I, upon graduation, everybody got a party a car or something yeah. I did. my dad gave me a piece of paper said you're an iron worker and i started the next morning at 5 a.m i got in at 3 a.m from graduation party and uh wow i, I was an iron worker i learned how to weld build stuff i worked for american bridge with my dad so it's kind of unique that was 1976 i made seventy-two thousand dollars in 76 and that's working like every wow. single day in overtime wow uh, in 82 i get to the big leagues i make thirty thousand dollars <laughs> So I take a cut and pay, but uh, I knew how to weld and use a torch before I knew how to do anything. Wow. So did you, I mean, obviously you're playing baseball in high school. So did you have dreams of playing baseball beyond high school at that moment that graduation comes and your dad says, hi, you're an iron worker? Well, I played all sports, football and basketball. Basketball was my number one. I had zero scholarships for baseball. And uh, because you probably play 15 games, 20 games at the most in the Midwest, and the old scouts around the neighborhood uh, didn't like me because I wore glasses. They said, you'll never go to the uh, big leagues and play with, play with glasses. That became my, what's the word, mantra, that I was going to go out there and show them yeah. and prove them wrong, and I did. And uh, I went to a tryout camp with the Dodgers signed, uh, went to spring training, first game in Clinton, Iowa with the Dodgers. I hit a double my first at bat. Mike Sosha hits a bloop single. Huh. I slide across the plate, and the catcher lands on me, breaks my neck, and paralyzes me. And I'm out of the game for the next two and a half years. Oh, my goodness. So, so when, is that, when is that thing with the Dodgers? When, when is that camp with the Dodgers? Well, that was 1976 in LaPorte, Indiana. So, so that is, that's the moment that you get from Ironworker to possibly back into baseball and on a big league track. 
and then you get hurt for two and a half years. Can you can you do iron work then no, during I, the two and a half years? What, oh, are, yeah. what are you doing? Well, I had a, the screws and the halo in my head. I couldn't do a whole lot. Wow. But I did go back uh, iron working. You got to make a living. You got to make money. And I love working. No matter what it is, I like to do something uh, to keep active. And I went to another uh, semi-pro. It's, really, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, the whole story. If you went to my webpage, you can read it. RonKittle.com. I, I played one game in a HEPA on 294 in Midlothian, and I hit a home run on the highway in front of Billy Pierce and Bill Veck's car. And they went to the next exit, got off. They said, who hit the ball on the highway? <laughs> that was on a Tuesday. And uh, they said, could you try out for uh, the White Sox on Friday? And I showed up Friday at Sox Park. Minnie Minosa was my coach. And... Uh, I put on a show, and they signed me that day for a contract for Double A. So the home run that you happened to hit, and it happens to be in front of Bill Vec's car. You know, one Unbelievable. millionth of a second in either direction, the story doesn't happen. Uh, so, you know, and I hated everybody after I broke my neck. I mean, I was angry because sure. I was pretty good. I mean, I could switch hit. I could throw 100 miles an hour. I could do it all. Uh, but things happen for a reason, and it takes you time to understand what that reason is. Wow, man, that, that, that's amazing. Understandably, you were angry, and then, and, and then you, you find opportunity, and there you go. So that, that all happens before we get to 1982 and 83, and, Cub fa and Sox fans start to get wind of you. But do you th I think that that story and, and your beginnings and all those things, it's a big part of why your appeal has lasted to Sox fans. Don't you think there's something about the level of hard work that you've had and, uh, and, and your commitment to, uh, to, to overcoming stuff like that, that, that has resonated with Sox fans through the years. You said it pretty nicely. I, I think that's it. I'm the real deal. I ain't going to lie to you. I'm going to tell it as it is. Uh, you might be uh, hurt when I say something, but don't, don't ask me if your girlfriend needs her roots dyed or nothing like that. I'll say, yeah, she does. But, uh, you know, I played hard. I played hurt. And, you know, and I came back from a lot of things. Uh, I'm paying for those injuries today. You are? I, I mean, tremendously. Uh, so I got three fused in my neck now. I have two herniated, one above, one below, two taken out of my lower back, and I have double thoracic outlet, which means my rib and my collarbone are fused together. So it's hard for me to shampoo my hair sometimes, but wow. uh, I will never, ever let anybody outwork me, no matter what it is. See, that, that, that's awesome. Um, and and you, you accept that level of physical pain and those kind of issues for the career and the life that you've had? Well, Has it gotten to that kind of place? Can you accept it? You know? Oh, I've accepted it a long time ago. You know, but I think after I had surgery and I had the halo on my head, the doctor said, you'll never play any sports again. Mm. Uh, in amateur or professional, like I said, that that was the day that uh, I, I decided to be better than him and force myself to do things. I, obviously, I stopped switch hitting. I couldn't. I can't turn my head to the the right side to hit lefty anymore. But uh, I, I'm all good. I, I made some uh, good friends. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I didn't care if anybody liked me when I was a teammate, but they would pick me because they know I was out there giving everything I possibly could. Who was the toughest guy on that 83 team? If you want to say yourself, you can. But, I mean, you got Lazinski, you got Fisk. You got, you got some dudes on that team. I, there was nobody as tough as I am, and they knew it. <laughs> I, I mean, I went through so much. Uh, yeah. 
and it, it just happened. Uh, great guys. I had a great coaching staff, great players. Uh, you know, I keep in touch with so many of them. You do? Then we got Harold Baines going into the Hall of Fame this year. You, I mean, You guys all feel a sense of uh, pride about that for Harold, well, uh, all you guys who talk? You know, I, I've said it many times. I'd, I'd take a bullet for that guy. I mean, I knew he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame a long time ago. Even Lee Smith deserved to be in there. And I talked to him yesterday. Uh, you take pride in people who work hard. And you have a long career, you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. You know, Harold's soft-spoken. I'm the loud guy. You know, it, it don't matter to me. But uh, that's my energy. I just got to keep myself going. Yeah. Uh, uh, who, who do you talk to? Who do you talk to still from that team? Uh, Lazinski's out in uh, Philadelphia. has Bulls ribs out in the outfield. So every he, time. He, he was coaching for a while, I, I, I think. But he's got Bulls ribs. He's got ribs at the stadium there in Philly. Yeah, left field. He's out there and uh, signing autographs. It's like a kissing booth. And uh, so the last <laughs> time I went out there just about a month ago, he was not there. So I had to pay for my own meal. So I took a picture of it and I sent it to Jerry Reinsdorf. I go, Jerry, Bull made me pay for my own meal out here. $42. And, <laughs> but it's all, Greg Walker. I talked to him. You know, he was my roommate for seven years. So wow. I keep in touch with a lot of people. That's awesome. And then, uh, and so I mentioned the woodwork, but it's really bat work. It, it like all over, uh, you know, Sox Park. But I've seen it other places too. You do some crazy, amazing stuff with bats. There's a bench right there. I think on the third floor, right outside the Bard's room, uh, across the street over there. But but when did that start? That you the woodworking and the, the building with the bats. You know, I bought a bench uh, from Louisville. Old guy was 89 years old, and it really wasn't assembled well. So I said, one day I'll make one, make it better. The first bench I made was pink. Pink bats, pink balls. I spray painted it, painted it all up. It looked really good. And it went to a charity. Uh, a lady's daughter died of breast cancer. So I, I shipped it to Provo, Utah, and a bunch of movie stars signed it during ski season. And it went for $18,000. And, you know, then all of a sudden I built one for George Lopez, the comedian, on his TV show. Uh-huh. It's, it was in his backyard for syndication. It's still there. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres autograph. President Bush, I made one. So I've made a ton of these. There's 18 bats, nine balls, bases are the seats. But I make the cabinetry uh, just like top-notch cabinetry, the bench where the bases sit on. And... Uh, you know, they started $2,500, and that's just material. I mean, because bats are not cheap anymore when you got 18 bats. Uh-huh. And I just do it for fun. There you go. RonKittle.com for all that uh, all the information and all that stuff. And I know you got something coming up. Kitty and Friends Cigar Social on the 9th of September right here at the Shy Sox Bar and Grill. What's that about? What's that going to be? For the last three years, uh, I, I've been involved in charity for years, 29 years, raised over $2 million. Uh, I'm one of the few players that write the check, lick the stamps, uh, you know, mail it out, shakes hands, does it. So I, I, I asked Jerry Reinsdorf three years ago, I said, hey, I'm going to do a cigar event for you. He goes, okay. You know, when the boss smokes cigars, he says, okay. And I got yelled at because I didn't follow protocol through the chain to get it to him. <laughs> I just walked in his office. Uh-huh. So this year we're going to do it again, September 9th, Chai Sox Bar and Grill. We're going to honor Hell Baines. Uh, Jim Tomey's going to be here, Tony Kukos. I only get about eight to ten players to come in here. It's not an autograph show. You get a great gift bag. It's a little high price, but it's nice to sit there to talk to people and have cigars. That's awesome. So info there at ronkittle.com. Ron, let's do this again sometime. I'd love to have you come in the studio and we can hang out and relax and talk, tell some stories. Absolutely. Be looking forward to it. All right. You got it. Thanks. Thanks so much, Ron. Appreciate it. Thank you. Be good. You got it. That's Ron Kittle of the White Sox. All-timer right here on 670 The Score. It's hit and run. We're taking you up to uh, pregame for Cubs and Sox at about 1235. I'm Matt Spiegel. You're listening to 6. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The score. Schwarber swings, lines one, down the line, fair ball, off to the left, one run is in, here comes another as Bodie scores, Schwarber racing the second, the throw, the slide, save, a two-run double for Kyle Schwarber, Cubs on top of the White Sox, three to one. How about that? My friend Zach Zaidman got to call that crazy inning. I forgot about that. Nice to hear him there. Highlight courtesy of 670 to score. Hilarious when Schwarber had no idea where that ball had gone. He hit it. He looked up. He looked back. Somebody might have yelled something, and then he just started to run. And it turned into a double because of where it landed and how slowly it rolled. And after he slides headfirst into first, he is, uh, he is like... Uh, ashamed of sorts, embarrassed, grinning, shaking his head repeatedly as he looked over towards the dugout, and they were just giving him crap like crazy. So that that's the Bobip gods hurting Lucas Giolito. Then Javi Baez drills one down the line. Of course, if it's a foot to the right, it might have been a, a, a ground out. Not a double play because first base was still open. I, you know, why didn't Rick Rent reload the bases? I mean, I guess you don't want to bring up Bryant, but, you know, to me, it's uh, load, the, load the bases. I'm that guy. I think that managers should do that more. There was a moment this week, okay? And by the way, the uh, bottom of the hour that just passed recently on the score was uh, brought to you by uh, Northwestern Football. And Northwestern football, actually, no, it was brought to you by Gerber Collision and Glass. Excuse me, bottom of the hour brought to you by Gerber Collision and Glass. When do you get it to Gerber? When you back into someone who is backing out. That's when you get it to Gerber. Locations throughout Chicagoland, visit GerberCollision.com or call 877-7-GERBER to find your nearest Gerber location. I've been wanting to mention this. When you're only on on the weekends for the most part, sometimes things happen and you go absolutely crazy because you're like, I need a microphone. I need a microphone. And what night was it? I guess it was uh, Wednesday night when the Cubs lost in heartbreaking fashion in Pittsburgh. I wanted to go and hit Les Grobstein gently on the head with a frying pan just to knock him out for a couple hours and then take over the microphone and just kind of do overnights alone for a little while and talk some Cubs. Just a gent, a, a gentle frying pan hit to the head. I don't want to maim him or anything. But um, so I knock him out for a little while because I wanted to say, why didn't Joe Madden walk the bases loaded or, or walk, uh, you know, I think it was, was Frazier with men on second and third. The winning run against Kimbrell was already at second. The tying run was already at third. Why don't you walk a guy and set up a force at every base? I'm screaming it from the couches. I'm watching the game. And then Frazier, I think it was, hit a ground ball to Addison. Addison was supposed to go to first and get the get the out and instead he went home and got nothing and i'm thinking man you know if it had been a ground ball similarly from a different guy after the walk you all victor caratini at home would have had to do is stand on home and, and just get a force out there at home to get an out and keep the lead and keep the inning going 
But then we find out later Madden was conceding that run at third base. He wanted Addison Russell to go ahead and take the out at first. That's, that's even more reason. If you're already conceding the run, then go ahead and walk the guy. But anyway, who am I? I'm not a manager. I'm a brilliant second guesser, but I was first guessing like a, like a behemoth right there. Yes, I was. Um, so the Babip gods got to Kyle Schwarber. They got to Lucas Giolito, and Kyle Schwarber hits the two-run double there. But that was after Giolito could not find the plate. If you missed Steve Stone earlier in the hour, go check it out, especially the stuff about managing and what he thinks the future of managing is. But also Giolito, he said flat out, Something that I had wondered as I watched it last night. I had kind of referenced at the top of the show, boy, I hope he doesn't have like a thing about the Cubs or big games or whatever. But, you know, anyway, Giolito lost his release point. Steve Stone flat out said, you have to pitch in big games before you learn how to pitch in big games. And that was a big game yesterday, as was the one at Wrigley a couple weeks ago. And Giolito gave up six earned runs both times. And Stoney mentioned how Giolito had reverted to a few different things. He's, you know, obviously the release point lost completely in the fifth inning, control lost completely. But also, at one point, remember, he throws the pitch and, like, his foot slips and he spins around completely with his back to home plate. A um, couple times James McCann went out and talked to him. A couple times, one time Don Cooper went out and talked to him. Giolito was all over the place. And Stoney flat out said that the pressure and size of the moment is something that you cannot learn how to uh, how to master until you're given the opportunity to do it. So if I were a Sox fan or I were Lucas Giolito, I would look at yesterday as an opportunity and something to file away. All right, I've got to remember. I've got to make sure that next time I get a chance in a big game, I don't do that. I stay myself. I stay calm. I breathe easier and go through some of those, uh, some of those techniques that Lucas has that uh, I'll talk to him about at some point. Some guys meditate. Lucas does that brain canics thing, the neurofeedback, which I'm so incredibly fascinated by. 670 the score. It is uh, hit and run. And when Stoney was talking about more managers than one, like two managers, was I the only guy who flashed back to the old college of coaches? The Cubs in 1961 and 1962 decided instead of a manager, they were going to do something called the college of coaches. This is because in 1960, they finished 60 and 94. It was their 14th straight finish in the back half of the, of the division, the back half of the league, second division. And P.K. Wrigley announced that the Cubs would no longer have a manager, but would have an eight-man committee. It was an experiment. Everybody laughed at them. And then it didn't work, and they laughed at them some more. And the College of Coaches were rolled out in 1961. There was a faculty. They called them a faculty for the College of Coaches that included Charlie Grimm and uh, Ripper Collins and bunch of other people you don't know. Charlie Grimm, you should know, because he's the one who threw the pitch. No, it's Charlie Root. Um, I was mixing up Charlie Grimm and Charlie Root. But anyway, eight coaches to rotate through the organization from low minors all the way to the Cubs, ensuring a standard system of play. Guess what? I understand that. I understand what they were talking about. It actually makes sense to me. That's pretty interesting. 
but it didn't work and it failed miserably and they were ridiculed. Just one more thing to pile on at the time. Until, until the Cubs got here and Theo Epstein got here and turned them into this model of organizational success that they have become for a lot of teams around baseball. Everybody who goes to a rebuild is trying to a rebuild that works out as well as it did for the Cubs, a near-perfect five-year rebuild. But now we are in to the second half of the window, and the challenges are real. We will, uh, we will play for you uh, a, a, a couple different bits of sound as we head towards Cubs pregame at 1235 with Zach Zaidman. Um, Theo Epstein talked about Joe Madden yesterday. I spoke with James McCann yesterday and in inside the clubhouse. I want to bring you a little bit of that. And then we've got a former Cub in a dust-up last night who said some crazy stuff, and the dude he was in the dust-up with has now said some stuff of firing back at him. So, boy, there's a tussle. Let's check it out. Nobody ever ran out to the parking lot to watch two guys get along. Let's run out to the parking lot to hear these guys not get along. We'll do that next. It's Matt Spiegel on Hit and Run, live from the Chai Sox Bar and Grill on 670 The Score. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 